This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. How would Alfred deal with these two visitors to Gotham from Ireland? Well, I mean, first of all, how did you get to the ball? And, uh, and secondly, I, I'd grasp you firmly by the elbow, and I'd walk you very smartly to the gates, and I might even show you my commando knife. Uh, <laughs> You could set the dogs on us as well. Yeah, well, no, I don't need dogs, mate. You know. Oh, and welcome back to Gotham TV Podcast. This is episode 41 of our show, covering The Blind Fortune Teller, episode 16 of Gotham. I'm Derek, I'm one of your hosts. Hi, I'm John, one of your other hosts. And what do you think of this one, John? Wow, wow. Um, basically, this is a glorified Joker Watch yes. episode, from Come Smile With Me to That Laugh, mm-hmm. um, to... An awful lot of clowns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We were so excited about the preview of this episode a couple of months ago that we recorded an entire Joker Watch half-hour episode where we talked about our speculation uh, about the possibility of Jerome being Joker, and finally we got to see the episode. Exactly. And, I mean, the thing with that as well is it was so difficult to to miss and not read anything about this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really highly hyped purely on the basis of Jerome and the possibility, the potential that this character could be, in fact, the Joker. Yeah, yeah. This so, iconic uh, bad guy in Gotham and in the Batman verse. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll talk about it as we get into the episode. Just one other mention again. We we talked about it last week. We've now recorded our first five reviews of Daredevil for Netflix, which you can hear over at DefendersTVPodcast.com/slash/itunes. Uh, if you want to follow uh, the Daredevil Netflix TV show. Uh, we'll be covering all 13 episodes of that show with reviews every every uh, every week or twice a week, I think, we're, we're looking for. Um, so follow us over there and uh, and pick up those episodes if you want to have a listen to the other TV Marvel Universe coverage that we do. Absolutely. And with that, I think, on to our review of The Blind Fortune Time. This episode of Gotham was written by uh, Bruno Heller, the show's creator. Um, given that it's the introduction to the Flying Graysons and potentially a Joker, it looks like Bruno wanted to make sure this was in his hands to uh, to control how the episode went. Uh, John, do you want to give us a, a synopsis of the episode? Absolutely. Whilst at the travelling circus on a date, Leslie and Jim's night out and the circus's show is interrupted by a violent and very real fight between the clowns also known as the Lloyds, and the Acrobats, the Flying Graysons. Jim and the GCPD step in to resolve this inter-family feud, but uncover more sinister developments at the circus, with the discovery of the brutally murdered body of the circus snake charmer by Jim and her son, Jerome. All the while, Bruce finally gets his day in front of the Wayne Enterprise board to voice his concerns over the commercial direction of the company, However, Alfred seems to be knowingly hesitant and worried with Bruce's course of action with the board of Wayne Enterprises. We also see Barbara return to Gotham, 
but her apparent hopes for her and Jim are dashed as Leslie and Jim's relationship seemingly goes from strength to strength. Meanwhile, after a cryptic message from the circus fortune teller, Cicero, Jim brings Jerome in for questioning. As revelations are uncovered in the interview, Jerome is ultimately arrested for the murder of his mother. Above all else, Jerome's behaviour and responses leaves a lasting and disturbing impression on all those in the interrogation room as a distinctive laugh rings through the GCPD precinct. Mm, I like that laugh as well. Yeah, it was a distinctive hybrid laugh. Um, It seemed to throw in elements of Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, and even Cesar Romero's uh, Joker laugh. Like, it it felt natural to all of those Mm -hmm. to some extent as... That laugh rang out across um, the GCPD precinct. Aye, I'm sure we're, we're jumping ahead into our case notes. I'm sure one of us has, uh, has written down something about Jerome to be discussed. So uh, with that, do you want to start with your first case point? I'm going to go straight in with the big guns, basically. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's Jerome. Uh-huh. His introduction, uh, the son of a murdered mother, mm-hmm. the son of an unknown father, well. you know? Possibly Cicero. Well, is Cicero in the yeah. end? It's it's revealed. But basically, the introduction of this character, you know, is he the Joker or is he not? I think either way, the first thing I want to say is I really liked how this character was was drawn. It was disturbing. It was disturbing. Whether mm-hmm. he's the Joker or not, it was a good character. It had disturbing elements and it fitted to me quite nicely with coming from sort of the circus, this idea that, you know, the circus has its own sort of laws and traditions that they kind of keep separate from mainstream society. And, you know, all that was kind of drawn out. So I kind of liked this element. It was detached from the normal world. And that, to me, played out really well. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of whether Jerome is the Joker or not, I think from my point, it would be to say that Yes, he could be. Okay. Whether he is, is another matter. I yeah. think one of the great things about the Joker is he doesn't have a backstory mm-hmm. and that there are potentially multiple lines to his origin that he would always throw out. You saw that in Heath Ledger's Joker where he keeps repeating um, different stories of why he got the scars and where he came from. And ultimately, you don't know which is true and which isn't. That mystery was brilliantly played with um, in Nolan's The Dark Knight. Mm. And I think, again, this could quite easily be Gotham playing around with multiple storylines of which they may or may not be the Joker. And if they're doing that, I think, good on you. I think that's a really good way of doing it. Um, If this is just a one-off and Jerome doesn't come back, I think I'd be slightly more disappointed with that because I mm. think his character um, was really good. The only thing I would say is, was he sent off to Arkham? Because his laugh and his response at the end of uh, being found out as the murderer of his own mother was slightly crazy. Mm-hmm. So presumably he's gone to Arkham, or has he just gone into a normal prison? You don't get to find that out other than that you know he's been apprehended. 
Yeah, I agree. I think Cameron Monaghan has done a really good job here. We know him from uh, from Shameless, uh, another really good TV show in the states, uh, a remake of a UK TV show. Um, but we know him. We know him from that show. I think he does a great job here as Jerome. But whether he's the Joker or not, I don't think it really matters. Um, in a sense, I think absolutely it doesn't show you the creation of why he would be the Joker, which is what we all expected to happen in this episode. We would expect it to to have some kind of revelation as to why he's he brings the craziness to Batman and the craziness to Gotham in the future. You don't get that story. You get the story of a young man whose mother is um, carrying on with a lot of men around around him while he's been growing up and he's had enough of it, essentially, and takes out, uh, takes out his anger on her and kills her. But does that mean he's the Joker or not? Not really. No, it doesn't. Um, not necessarily. It means that he killed his mother. It, that's all. That's all. That's all it means. It's not. It doesn't ruin anything of the backstory of the Joker and doesn't give us a huge amount of insight into why he would be the future, um, the future villain for for Batman or the future opposite side of the coin to Batman. We're not there yet, definitely from this episode. We're nowhere near there at all, and mm-hmm. I I think it's you know it's the laugh, it's the ginger hair in mm-hmm. a sense, that red fiery hair. Um, all of those elements sort of come into play. And I think there's other aspects there as well. You know, the fact that the circus can, as I said, be this nebulous kind of traveling um, group of people mm-hmm. who have their own rituals, traditions. Uh, you know, we see this in American Horror Story at the moment with Freak Show, which is like this traveling um, band of people. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's in the same way, but it's that notion of being different and being outsiders from normal society yeah. that is the point really there. Yeah. Um, and that he's from that part of society where they have, all, as well, their own ways of handling murders and violence within the circus itself yes you know i i liked that element to to all of this um, and definitely um one thing i would say and obviously we've been covering the show for quite a long time and as we said we heard about this this possible joker a couple of months ago i have been reading a lot of comments online saying that he doesn't do a great job of being heath ledger um or that he does do a great job of being heath ledger I have to say 100% I think he is trying to do a great Jack Nicholson his the look on his face and the the style of the laughter in that in that iconic scene now in, in this episode uh, it really felt like Jack Nicholson it felt it felt more like something out of um, an early Jack Nicholson film or Batman it didn't really feel like Heath Ledger's Joker at all Heath Ledger's Joker is a very different character to the, what this character is I think yeah I agree I mean I do think that he had, um Cameron Monaghan um, really just has a great series of dialogue in that interrogation room where he says, don't be nagging me about the dishes, uh, talking about his mum, when you're banging a clown in the next room. I mean, really kind of disturbing kind of sense of humour, but just done really well. I mean, his eyes are menacing, the way he just flips on a coin um, there towards Cicero, who's just been kind of revealed as his father, mm-hmm. um, is um, is just really, really good. It's a great scene. Um, and I do really want to see more of Jerome, irrespective of whether he's uh, the Joker. Mm-hmm. I do think as well, Jim is kind of relentless, asking about you know his father, who he thinks is a sailor or a captain of a boat. And he's like, we'll name some of the ships that you've... That your father was on, and he and he can't do. It. He says, "Well, name the ship that he died on yeah. as it went down and and sank, and and he can't." And 
it's kind of very um, relentless streak from Jim here in the interrogation. Yeah, I like I like the reaction from Leslie Tompkins in the background when she sees how hard Jim goes after this. I suppose he knows he's the he's the murderer, but you can see on the face of Leslie Tompkins, this is a different side of Jim than she would see in in their normal relationship together. But yeah, really good scene. I think one of the few things that of this kind of investigation that just slightly. Um, annoyed me was and I've mentioned this before where there's suddenly just this change and you don't understand why they're suddenly solving the case Mm -hmm. and I do think again here all of a sudden um, you don't get the reasoning behind why Jim is now bringing Cicero and Jerome in um, and he's got this already planned out and he knows that Jerome is the killer and you know it's all kind of premeditated and you don't really see that thought process or that reasoning within the previous scenes there wasn't even any investigation of the hellfire um hatchet mm-hmm. that was found by the the Gotham bridge um from Cicero's whole sort of cryptic message that he delivers to Jim and to to Leslie Tompkins there's none of that reasoning out through that line of investigation to then say well this is nonsense Mm. and therefore what are the other options oh it could be that cicero was just feeding us this information it's just suddenly plonked in that jim knows this and i don't know how he got to that conclusion i'm not saying it needs to take 25 minutes of an hour episode Mm. i'm just saying a couple of scenes or a couple of some some serious dialogue with Harvey or Captain Essen talking about that investigation, what's going on, um, would just really help here, I think. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. I know that um, Jim never believes that Cicero is a is a fortune teller. Um, he does specifically say to Leslie, all I do here is I work the case, I work the information that I'm given. Um, but you're right, there isn't, a, there isn't a moment where you see Jim say, well, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I believe. It's very much, well, I'm going to eliminate the fact that I'm that he's talking to someone from beyond the grave. And if he's not talking to someone from beyond the grave, then the reason why the hatchet is where it is is because well, he planted it there or told someone else to plant, to plant it there. He questions Cicero, but already has Jerome sitting outside waiting to come into the interview room. So it's it seems like a real shorthand, a really quickly put together. Yeah. It is shorthand. And yeah. I can understand why the, why they do this, but it is that element of... Even with Cicero, maybe it was Cicero then. Why does he then suddenly pinpoint it onto Jerome? And how is how does he come to the conclusion that Cicero is Jerome's father? I mean, that is something that's just not really explored fully enough yeah. in that sort of build-up to that scene, which is great in itself. But there's just certain threads that just appear from nowhere, and you kind of going well how does jim know these things mm-hmm. he's super he... detective well he is he <laughs> is um but a little bit more exposition on that would i think really sort of add a bit more weight to some of these great scenes that we're seeing yeah yeah it's interesting isn't because he does investigate and interview probably 30 or 40 different individual clans and the flying graysons essentially but you don't hear any of them say anything about jerome at all they just want to talk about the feud between the two families, and that's it. Yeah, and, and that whole investigation is played out in a more comedic role as yeah. well, which I actually really liked, and I'll come to that mm-hmm. um, as one of my other points. But you could have just had a few lines dropped in there, mm-hmm. which really sort of bring about a sense that it's Jerome is a bit nutty, is maybe a bit of a sociopath or mm-hmm. something, Perhaps. and that 
that leads Jim to thinking, well, I can't rule him out. But you don't hear any of that. So it just suddenly feels like it's like a eureka moment Mm -hmm. uh, without finding out the reason or the path why Jim came to that decision or conclusion. Yeah, we get that. Uh, Anything else on Jerome from you? No, I think that's all. Um, I think a really good um, character introduced into the world of Gotham here, Mm -hmm. whether he's the Joker or not, I really, really thought um, Cameron Monaghan played this character, Jerome, really, really well. Yeah. I think as well, any more of our thoughts on this particular um, scene, this hype around Jerome or the Joker, um, you can check that out on our um, Joker Watch special mm-hmm. podcast as well. Yeah. You know, where we talk about Jerome and the Joker for about half an hour. So. That's, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, but you can't not talk about him. It's uh, it's quite a, a, a quite a big character introduction if he is the Joker. Um, well, my first case point is pretty connected to it, really. It's uh, it's actually just about Mr. Cicero, the blind fortune teller of the title of this episode. Um, what really stood out to me, and I thought it was quite interesting, is that his, uh, his sense of style, his, uh, his I suppose how he dresses, um, is quite interesting to me because he's wearing a big purple hat, uh, very similar to one that the Joker would have worn in in some issues of of the Batman comic books, like uh, The Man Who Laughs. Um, it's quite interesting that this could be where the Joker gets his style from, I think. it's uh, He's wearing his uh, wearing purple outfit, quite similar to, as I say, Jack Nicholson's version of the character or some of the 80s comic book versions. Um, so it would be interesting to see if, if Jerome is the Joker, will he take up that style or will he go for more of the um, the, the tragic punk style, which uh, which Heath Ledger had had in in the Dark Knight trilogy, and um, so I just thought that was quite an interesting little little touch for Mister Cicero. Yeah, definitely. And there was talk that his little sidekick with the kind of raccoon hat on, mm-hmm. and the the little kid there who's kind of guiding this blind fortune teller around, almost it it's his cane in a sense. And there was talk as well that he could be the Joker. I know, I know. It, it, I don't it, think so, but. Um, could be. There's another Joker watch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This whole episode did start with the uh, with our Joker watch theme. So um, this is the reason. There's lots of little lots of little revelations there. Yeah, I think the um, the point on that was that somebody had said. I think one of the uh, one of the producers on the show had said that uh, your Joker has been introduced, um, but may not necessarily be Jerome. Just to kind of throw people off and have um, have that whole concept of Joker Watch continue, um, so everybody was going, well, what about that character in the background of that scene, or that character in the back background of that scene? You know, so is it the little boy with the with the the furry hat who would be much younger than uh, than Bruce Wayne? But uh, we don't know what age the Joker is. We don't know how close in age the two of them are as characters. We just know he was created seventy five years ago this year. That's all we know. That is true. That is true. <laughs> uh, but that's my point on, on Mr. Cicero. That's my uh, my first point that I pulled out of the episode. Uh, John, have you got a, a second point there? I do. I have another four. In fact, um, with our five uh, case points um, mm-hmm. and case files, my next point is the comedy value brought in with the whole circus, the, the Haley's traveling circus, mm-hmm. um, and that, in particular how Captain Essen and Detective Bullock uh, respond to all of a sudden having the GCPD precinct sort of inundated with clowns, acrobats, uh, unicycle riders, right. um, you know, lion tamers, all this kind of thing. Um, I just thought... It was a really nice sort of contrast with the 
disturbing murder investigation that occurs, the disturbing behavior of Jerome in the interview room. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a nice little counterpoint to this comedy value that was underlying this episode. And I actually thought it worked really, really well. And, you know, there are a number of points. I think Captain Essen, again, in her office, Jim is there, has a great sequence of, of lines that she says to um, to Jim. Uh, we'll play that here. Back up a little. So you set the snake loose? Yes, ma'am. To track down the body? Yes, ma'am. The snakes have an excellent sense of smell. Well, now I know. And your prime suspects are a clown and an acrobat. Yeah. Ain't this one a doozy? Yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> you know, just this idea, your prime suspect is a clown and an acrobat, you know. There's, you let a snake loose, why mm-hmm. would you do that? I mean, I love um, Captain Essen's delivery uh, of of her lines. It's like, you know, you are crazy. You are an atypical police detective. She's almost, that seems to be the tone of her voice whenever she speaks to Jim mm-hmm. uh, after he's done something like crazy, stupid, um, you know, controversial or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I, and I love that. And I think the expressions here are on their, their faces, you know, as all the circus um, people are brought into the precinct. And, you know, Harvey's face here is great, whereas, like, is this a prank? You know, right. is this like a complete and utter joke? You know, as he's watching all these people sort of shuffle in. So for me, I really kind of like this mm-hmm. this contrast with some of the darker elements um, of this episode. Actually, yeah, I, I really did. I mean, even just the whole Jerome's mother being a snake charmer as well. You know, double meaning here, maybe <laughs> given that she is being called a prostitute, a, a loose woman in all of the, the dealings by her you know, son in the end, but mm-hmm. also from people um, in the circus. You know, there's a lot of kind of innuendo going on here as well, I think. <laughs> Trust you, John. Trust you. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really... There is a fun and sort of mischievous side to this episode that I really liked, and I think it plays well with just the circus element. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. so I, I thought that was great. Yeah, no, I agree with you. There's some uh, some really good scenes there of, of humor. I do think the one thing I laughed most at was probably not intended to be funny, which is uh, which is Jim releasing the snake to find the dead body of uh, of Jerome's mother. Um, yeah, I don't know whether that's possible at all. I I have looked on the internet to see if there if it is possible to use uh, to use a snake as a detective, but um, I don't think it is. Uh, the only thing I saw connected to it was. Fox telling people that it was possible, um, well, but they Cap- but they produced the show. So, <laughs> well, Captain Essen did as well. Um, you know, she did say, um, "Can you actually use a snake in mm-hmm. that way?" She actually calls it out to Jim in her office, That's and he true. goes, "Yeah, they can." You know, smell the air with their tongue by taking the the taste of it and mm-hmm. and find their way. And it's kind of delivered in a way that it's a known fact, but yeah. Yeah, but using a snake as Lassie is probably uh, something I didn't expect. <laughs> Maybe he gets his own spin-off, Snakey. Uh, Maybe. Potentially. <laughs> so then, um, 
what's your next case point? Uh, my next case point is the opening of the episode with uh, with Mrs. Cappleput. Uh, we've mentioned a couple of times here that there's this whole episode is really an extended Joker watch again. Um, but yeah, the opening of the episode where she sings the tune when you're smiling, uh, the whole world smiles with you, which is a, a tune totally associated with the Joker for me. Um, but she's standing on stage in Oswald, the newly redeveloped place where, you know, Oswald Cobblepot has been told he needs to go back much more to Fish's style because the punk music last week wasn't working very well for uh, for the clientele. But now he's obviously brought in that clientele and put his mother on stage to sing uh, an old jazz tune or an old an old tune. They're not very happy with uh, with with Mrs. Cobblepot. Um, but yeah, you don't uh, you certainly don't criticize. Mrs. Cobblepot in front of Oswald, do you? Uh, that is a, a truly great moment when the, <laughs> when the heckler tells the old woman, old bag, to get off the stage. And uh, just in uh, off scene, I think it's a fantastically put together uh, scene that's done where, uh, where Oswald stalks out of the scene um, and uh, hits the guy with a bottle, um, spreading blood over another one of the patrons. I don't think he's going to continue to get that many patrons if he, if he keeps killing them off. Absolutely not. I mean... It's a great little sort of sequence. And again, it's played to comedy value. Yeah. Where off the screen, you hear the smash of the glass and then the poor lady gets covered in blood. And mm-hmm. um, there's limited applause. I think I mentioned it last week. I have this feeling that the club will see rough times. Mm-hmm. There's an element of it here where no one is really applauding Gertrude's uh, rendition of um, the song is smiling with pure sort of um, pride and being chuffed at his mum on stage. There's a distinctive kind of, I think, Eastern European folk sound being done here, which I think goat harks to her um, sort of origin Mm -hmm. and her backstory as well. That sympathy in, in her taste of this Eastern European folk music sound. I really like that. Even the girl with the violin, as and when Victor Zaz comes in, it's all very kind of uh, a folky sound to mm. me, which obviously isn't playing well with the punters um, at all. And you, there's no applause. So this seems like hard times are falling uh, on, on on the club now, to the point where we do see the reintroduction of Butch as well uh, by Victor Zaz, who is brought in to sort out the mess that is currently being generated by Penguin in relation to the money generation. Mm -hmm. And as we know from the previous episode, Falcone thinks this is an important club for money, influence and control of Gotham. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just love the scene. I love the scene with Mrs. Calvert. Anything that she's... uh that she's involved in obviously makes me really happy but that's my uh, that's my next point is, uh, is Mrs. Cabblepot at Oswald's uh, enjoyed that uh, John next yeah. um, my next point is something that really is bringing or starting to bring to fruition um, elements that were brought in back in the episode called Viper which I think was episode 5 mm. um, and that is Bruce Wayne finally getting to sit with the board of Wayne Enterprises. Yeah. And there's a few uh, aspects of, of this that I, I really, really liked. I, right at the start of the episode, we see Alfred's hesitancy, he, kind of a cautiousness uh, come into um, his response to Bruce to say, you know, is this a good idea? Mm-hmm. You know, I want to put it out here right now. 
I don't think you should go to the board. It's like he knows something um, from working uh, with Thomas and Martha Wayne previously. He knows something a bit more about um, the board of Wayne Enterprises and maybe some of the internal conflicts that Thomas uh, Wayne used to have on, on that board. Mm. Um, and that I like. I think that adds a, a new dynamic or um, a bit more of a threat to Bruce going to uh, the board of Wayne Enterprises. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, obviously... Thomas ran the board with a, you know, with this, with a sense of justice, with a sense of um, of holding them to a higher standard than most businesses. But it seems like, as you say, that Alfred always thought that that was a difficult thing to run a company like that, and he doesn't want to get the young man Bruce involved in it at this stage. It doesn't seem like he may not be able to influence the board that much, and Alfred doesn't really trust them to uh, to do what he says. But yeah, fantastic scene. I think then, yeah, the scene actually in the boardroom, and I thought that boardroom was pretty cool. It was mm. like a box within a room, um, a glass box within a room. Right. Um, but I thought that whole scene as well, you know, where he delivers his two areas of concern, both the harks back to the Arkham Asylum development yeah. um, and that being meted out between Moroni and Falcone by the mayor's office, mm-hmm. and also then weapons manufacturer at Wellsign um, Pharmaceuticals and the whole Viper episode then as well. So it, it's got some good links back to earlier episodes, I think. But then just how... Bruce um, delivers the line um, about his age, I think is great, and I think we have the clip here. I hope you do look closely into these issues, because I'll be raising them at the next shareholders' meeting with a view to possible legal action. Dear me, legal action? These are all very deep waters for such a young man. My youth is not relevant, except that if I were a man, I would be chairing this board. And I would be sure that Wayne Enterprises was run honestly. Thank you for your time. Yeah, just it's, it's just great. I love the reaction of the board where it's like, hi, young man, welcome. Welcome to your special day coming into the offices that you're, of the company your father owned kind of thing. And then he just delivers that, uh, says my age isn't an issue, and then, and then delivers a fantastic speech. I think if my, if my CEO was to, to deliver that, it would be quite an inspiring speech to say, I've looked... You know, I've looked into the books. These are the things I'm concerned about. If I was older, I'd be running the company, essentially. And I want you to do to run the company the way I want it run uh, from there. That's the thing. But I, I think it's done and balanced really well because you could have the delivery of that line where it wouldn't seem to fit with the person who is giving it mm-hmm. because of their age. But I think the way David Mazous is doing the whole character of a young Bruce Wayne, it feels totally at home with this younger character that he would deliver that kind of um, speech to older people. He's not afraid of being young. He's not afraid of telling other people, people who are much older than him, that he has issues and concerns, Mm -hmm. um, that he is advocating a responsibility and I just thought that was a really nice sort of grown-up way of of dealing with that age issue that some people may have and I think it's been done really really well and then as you say the the look on the board members faces which is kind of oh we can you know swap this little kid off and quite easily but he makes them sit back up and listen Mm -hmm. and it'll be interesting to see then 
how that plays out in any future episodes because obviously that's all we really get um, on this whole um, meeting of Bruce Wayne with the board um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um, over the course of the rest of the season because I'm really liking the idea of the darker elements in Wayne Enterprises and even from what we were talked about from um, WonderCon in our last episode, the issue of the Court of Owls, whether that could be introduced here, is a really nice kind of intriguing um, and delicious sort of prospect that could could be here. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's an interesting point to note that the last time we had talked about Wayne Enterprises as such was with the character Martha Mathis, who we know wasn't a member of the board, but the fact that she doesn't appear in this episode at all, it, it still gives you that kind of shadowy idea as to whether somebody else is controlling these bad elements within within Wayne Enterprises and the board aren't aware of it, or the board may be aware of it and are dealing with Martha Mathis. Martha Mathis. I can't say her name. Sometimes it's uh, I just find it quite difficult to say the two, two words together. Sorry. Um, but you don't know whether it's the board that are doing this or whether it's Martha Mathis that's doing uh, that's Yeah, doing going off elements. on her own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I thought it was a good idea to keep her out of this episode so that we still have that um, the potential duality of the board, uh, whether they're involved or whether they're the ones controlling it. So, uh, But yeah, really good point. I really enjoyed that one. So Derek, what's your next case note? Um, my next one is actually about Leslie and Jim. Um, a really good, interesting little confrontation there uh, that they have in the, in the park uh, when they're looking for the murder weapon. Um, I just thought it was a good point because it's something that we've talked about in the past between the relationship between Jim and Barbara, that Jim's looking for a strong woman. Um, and Leslie calls it out. Uh, Leslie says, um, you're, you say you want a strong woman to share this life with you, uh, but you really want me at home to bake cakes. Uh, I think it's interesting that Leslie's seeing that side of Jim that we've talked about in the past. Um, she's seeing that, you know, he he says one thing, wants another um, you know, essentially, but uh, but yeah, this is the first real confrontation in an episode where you can see their relationship develop and deepen. We said the two of them are quite similar characters. She's very interested in the investigations. She really wants to be involved in everything that's going on and has the ability to be involved. Whereas Barbara, while she wanted to be involved, she couldn't handle the um, that side of of Jim's life. But I thought it was interesting that it was called out by Leslie in this episode. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of is a bit of a, a roller coaster. Like, I mean, in the synopsis, I say they go from strength to strength, but that's only because they've kind of rolled down back down the hill to some extent. Mm. But it's an entire roller coaster. They start off on a date, everything seems fine. As you say, they go through these motions where um, Leslie is again questioning, What is it, Jim, that you want from a relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Jim kind of relenting and saying, well, okay, I will bring you into the interrogation room with Jerome. And actually, Leslie, being a bit of a thrill seeker, really, she's even though she's disturbed by what she saw, she's grateful to having seen um, that part of Jim's work and mm-hmm. being involved in it, as you say, because she can be, unlike Barbara, I mean, to the extent that she actually joined the GCPD as the medical examiner. Yeah. And then by the end, it's that they're in a strong, loving embrace, um, unfortunately, as Barbara walks in to, to see this. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's that kind of roller coaster. And again, she calls out Jim's uncertainty as to what it is he actually likes. I mean, we yeah. saw that previously. He tells Leslie about the medical examiner post. She, on her own initiative, um, goes for the job, gets it. When she's there, all of a sudden, Jim 
almost kind of pulls back from it. I know don't show any kind of affection here yeah. and so on. And whilst that might be like fine, and I I would understand that in terms of office romances, mm-hmm. nonetheless, you know, she's the one that well, we kissed in the precinct before in the locker room yeah. and, and so on. You know, why are you suddenly becoming all coy with me? You know, what is it that you want? And again, she calls that out over uh, the dinner table. Yeah. And it's it is. It's a really nice dynamic. It's a real um sort of a working through kind of dynamic that we as the audience get to see um how their relationship is developing. Yeah, yeah. Just one other one other point about the, the discussions between the two of them. Um Jim totally ignores uh, Leslie's opinion. So Leslie's opinion is that the blind fortune teller is telling the truth that he could possibly be talking to someone from beyond the grave, weirdly. Um, he call, he says, you're a scientist. How can you even believe in this kind of stuff? And she says, there's some things that science can't explain. To which Jim responds, yeah, like people who like folk dancing, which I thought was a really funny line. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he put, places no um, credence in her belief that the blind fortune teller is telling the truth. Um, that That they instantly diverse in opinions from that point onwards, essentially. But I think it's quite interesting. I think they do a good job of setting up the relationship. And yeah, again, um, we know it's probably destined for failure. And unfortunately, Barbara has now caught them in the act. So poor Barbara is uh, is again spiraling down. Um, another another uh, rug has been pulled from under the character. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to her uh, next week. Uh, that was my case point, John. Yeah, well, obviously we get to see um, the Flying Graysons mm. introduced here. Um, the Grayson family um, flying through the air um, as acrobats in the big top at the circus. Um, and for me, I thought it was nicely done. It wasn't overly done. You know, there was a touch of Romeo and Juliet about it mm-hmm. with this fuse with the Lloyds uh, and the Graysons. And especially kind of this um, little kernel of love interest between Mary Lloyd on one side and then John Grayson um, on the other side, who ultimately are the parents of Dick Grayson and um, mm-hmm. Robin yeah, um, yeah, at a future date. And I, I kind of really liked um, that aspect of this feud between the two. The feud, though, is three generations long, and it's over a horse. That's right. Um, and it's it's kind of it's slightly weird that it would be that, and I'm I have no idea whether that is um, from the comics no. or anything. <laughs> I mean, it it can't it's be not, no. no. But I would have preferred to have seen this feud in a Romeo and Juliet style, and um, a bit more where you know it's the Capulets and the Montagues, where it's they just don't get on. They're, they're rivals for being the biggest thing in the circus. Mm. Um, but actually, a member from each camp um, is falling in love with the other that leads to um, the birth of Dick Grayson. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's it's all right. Um, I like the introduction of the Flying Graysons. They're introduced quite well. Um, you know, we we probably know them from the comic books from really just that that sequence where we where were introduced to them visiting the town and uh, doing acrobatics and then unfortunately get killed yeah. um, the story's been told many times they've been killed by different people and as usual with these with these stories of Batman the, the origin gets muddied over the years so there's various different versions of who was the who's responsible for their death um, but the one thing I really really didn't like was how how it was the end of the episode where 
Mary and John talk to Jim Gordon and call it out specifically. If it wasn't for you solving this case, Jim, we would never have gotten together and nobody would ever uh, would ever know that, that the two of us were in love and nobody would ever have accepted our love. If we have a child, we'll call him Gordon. Ah, oh, terrible, terrible ending to the to the to the to the episode, and terrible ending to their relationship. I presume they're not going to appear again now until they have a baby in tow, uh, and they're going to now have to explain why they didn't call him Gordon, why they called him uh, why they called him Dick Grayson. But that was hugely cringeworthy. Really it really was. It was um, wedged in there like um, I don't know something horrendously wedgy um, <laughs> that was out of place and that's what i mean yeah. where i would have preferred to have seen the feuding elements of these two families done slightly differently mm-hmm. and ultimately there was a setup there of romeo and juliet to an extent mm-hmm. do it along those lines three generations worth of feuding over a horse that's the comedy and i totally get that yeah, but it's not good comedy that's my point okay. i mean i there was much better comedy value and for me, mm-hmm. in this episode, that to me was just stupid. Right. Surely someone at some point went, you know, that's ridiculous. Let's move on. Get, yeah. it, get on with it. And um, so I didn't really buy that. I would have much preferred to have seen it being a rivalry to do with being the biggest um, event in the circus show. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, maybe the Graysons did something that offended the lawyers because they took the limelight, that kind of thing, because they're performers. That's, you know, that's that seems to me to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. But then you have this secret relationship going on between um, Mary and John uh, on the different sides would have been much better. I mean, I completely agree with you that line at the end and she's got the ring on as well. I mean, it does again. It was like high velocity to this this ending which didn't need to happen in season one yeah. at this moment in time yeah you could have the two of them ho- vacationing in or holidaying in gotham in a year's time and say look we got together after what happened or with, the circus returns time. next year yeah like, i mean i remember as a kid the circus came into town once a year and you'd go and visit it mm-hmm. i don't think that happens anymore in many places but you, you do it like that. You could have the circus returning each year in each of the seasons and see it, it develop over that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a great little motif throughout each of the seasons that could be could be dealt with um, in that kind of way. But mm-hmm. instead, it's all rushing and careering in a in a dreadful kind of car crash to this really awkward line and Mm -hmm. and dialogue at the end which serves no purpose yeah no i totally agree totally agree uh that it about the flying graysons for you yeah i mean as i say i actually really liked how they were introduced with the circus and the days and all surrounding this this murder of the snake charmer Mm -hmm. um but you know it could have been handled more romeo and juliet style i think okay so then, uh, what's your final point? Uh, my final point is Fish. Fish Mooney, this episode, again, just the um, the character of Fish developing as a leader. And you can now see why she has such control in, in Gotham. We talked about it last week a little bit. But, um, yeah, I really love this. I, I felt that it was it's some it's the kind of character I now want to follow and want to want to see what happens to her. She has gone from strength to strength over the last couple of episodes, particularly. But showing the uh, the... Um, guys coming down, coming down to take one of the prisoners away, and she's rallied all the troops together. Um, 
to essentially say that if that if they come and try and take somebody else, we'll kill them because they need them alive, you know. And um, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting development for for the Fish Mooney character. I do love just a quick a quick side note of the beginning of the uh, of this portion of the episode where she's standing on the back of one of the uh, one of the prisoners to give her to elevate herself up above everybody else. I thought that was really interesting. It was almost like something from from Egypt or something like that. Some kind of very old style leader uh, of of the camp. But um, but yeah, I think it's really fascinating that she's essentially saying, um, saying to them that we have to either uh, live together or die alone. The uh, the lost speech, I think, is is what she's referencing there. But a really good, um, a really good motivational moment for Fish, where she gets the ho- the whole team together and tells them that we're going to work together to get out of this. But not all of us are going to get out of it. Well, fifty seven A certainly doesn't get out of it. He um. He gets a lot of punches to the the body and to the head, and ultimately he doesn't make it. I mean, I think this is a really good development of Fish cementing her power in in this uh, basement, in this prison, mm-hmm. but also then sparking a rebellion against their captors, but in a way that keeps them having power. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's really interesting. And I mean, it all pays off in the end, where she is being let out to go and see the manager, Mm -hmm. in a sense. You know, who is this guy, and how is that going to play out? It would be really interesting to see who is at the the top of this this unknown uh, organization Mm -hmm. um, in this building that has a prison underneath filled with, with people. And certainly given... The the no eyes lady at the end of the last episode where mm-hmm. she comes in and says, they took my eyes so you know, what are they doing here um, and how does that sort of play into maybe some of the other things that we've heard about who could be behind this ultimately it'd be really interesting yeah but definitely yeah Fish's character is really being developed quite well here and I can see why she was in the power position that she was in in Gotham she's definitely showing that she can control the room full of people and uh, and guide them into what she wants them to do she is a tough 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 character and Mm -hmm. it's great um this is a strong and determined woman and i love seeing this even though we're still in the dark about who is above her Mm -hmm. and and what's going on above her in, in this facility it's just such a good um personal journey for her character down in this basement and it is brilliant it's really good yeah yeah um john what's your final point about the episode my final point is the reintroduction of butch Mm. and unfortunately for me and this is again maybe a slight negative element here is is butch gilzean dancing Mm. and i wasn't taken with it i thought it undermined his character I know he's been experimented on or he's had stuff done to him by Victor, mm-hmm. and I like that kind of Absolutely. aspect to it. Um, I just didn't think it should have been played out with, you can get him to do anything, and then it Oswald asks him to, to dance. I like um, the idea that Butch is still there and that he's not being killed off. For me, that is great because I love this character. I mm-hmm. love the journey that he has gone on with fish and and being that loyal right hand person I just thought it was excellent and he's come back and to begin with it was great because he was there it looked almost like a zombie like 
you know, he was sort of blank. It was this blank expression of having been, um, had something done to him yeah. by Victor. And it looked really good. You saw the terror in Oswald as he suddenly is just stood there. You know, what's this guy going to do? And Victor says, you know, you can control him. I just wish they hadn't then done the dance. Yeah, it, I know. No. To me, just undermined elements of what we had seen previously of Butch and that journey. It's a short little blip. That's it. And it isn't going to ruin Butch Kills Ian for me at mm-hmm. all. But there's some things where I do question the choice of and timing of why and when they did it. Mm-hmm. And in this sense, that was one of them for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. I know the, the show tries to try, strike the balance between a show for kids and a show for adults. It tries to, to walk the tightrope between those two things. Um, but sometimes it just gets it so wrong. You know, over here in the UK and Ireland, it's, it airs at 9pm in the evening, which generally means that it's after the watershed and is only a show for adults. It's not for kids. Uh, whereas in the US, it airs at 8pm, which is generally a time reserved for uh, for programs that are for the whole family, essentially. So what we see in the past is we've had some very violent pieces. We've had, you know, discussions about, uh, on our show, we've talked about how some of those violent scenes would not be appropriate for people under the age of 12. Um, we talked about, you know, uh, the, the drug use that's in some of the episodes um, not being appropriate for people that are under under the age of 12. And that's why it's reserved for a program after 9pm. But having this kind of scene with Butch Gilzine dancing is is totally inappropriate for a show just for adults. It didn't, it didn't fit the tone of the show that they've been making for the last couple of months. But I, I think that even with this episode, you know, you have a disturbing character like Jerome. You have the brutal murder of someone where you see the body, you mm-hmm. see the blood. You have these discussions about her being a prostitute, mm-hmm. uh, being a lady of the night and so on. And this, you know, some of the lines that came from Jerome, which I thought were really good, just that sort of kind of resentment to an extent of her nagging him, but don't nag me and be um, having sex with a clown mm-hmm. uh, in the other room. But, you know, Really good, really quite strong, really adult. Yeah. And some of the comedy elements for me worked, like all the circus coming into the GCPD, because I mm-hmm. thought it was a nice balance. It was the circus of the precinct and the circus coming into the, the precinct and some of the lines surrounding that. And then there are other moments where it just doesn't fit to what they've been doing with that character. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, it's purely my opinion, and it's just purely my own kind of preference. I thought I didn't like that aspect of um Butch dancing. It didn't fit to me with the scene because Victor is such a menacing character in himself. Mm-hmm. Butch's and just the way he was played to begin with, as I say, blank um emotionless mm-hmm. and then he does this kind of you know fairly emotionless dance as well but it, i just didn't think he needed to do that yeah you no know, ask him to fire a gun and mm-hmm. uh and to not actually then point it at oswald to kill him that mm-hmm. he just fires it something you know, like something that, like that. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, and we're, we're done kind of with our five points, but I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that this particular episode was written by Bruno Heller, who's the creator of Gotham. Um, it feels like the reason he took 
this on was because he was introducing the Joker and introducing the other big element to the Batman universe, which is Robin. He was introducing the parents of Robin and the Flying Graysons. Do you think he was successful in taking on this episode himself? I can understand why he would take it on. Having said that, I think he could also have delegated it. I don't think there was any particular reason for why he needed to take it on. Um, I think, for me, one of the bigger issues, rather than... Yeah, Bruno Heller did the first episode, and I thought that was really, really good. Um, I think maybe with Jerome, with the Flying Graysons, maybe there were two really big elements that had to be brought in and introduced, and that caused problems with with the, the pacing of, of the episode. But I think, for me, there's a lot in this episode that I really, really like, such as the Graysons being introduced the comedy elements, and Jim and Leslie's relationship, Barbara coming back, and Jerome. Some really, really good elements here. But I do think that maybe there was a lot of hype surrounding the episode Mm. because of this idea that maybe the Joker's being introduced. You also have the Graysons. And maybe there was a bit too much to live up to here because actually... On watching it, I felt that this was more of a, almost like a transitory sort of episode in between sort of larger beats, yet it had Jerome in there. And I think without him, and I think without some of those other elements, this would have been a very um, different kind of episode. I think for me anyway, overall, this isn't one of my favourite episodes Mm. by uh, a long way. But I think it's solid, and I think it's good, and I think with Jerome, it certainly moves it into that that area, which is, it's a good episode right. for me. And right. um, I think without him, I think it may have been played out quite differently, but then there wouldn't have been the hype as well. I think sometimes hype can kill something, Yeah. and I think maybe to an extent there was slightly too much surrounding this notion of the Joker, and it maybe should have been underplayed more. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think they definitely hit the hit, they hit the hype stride with this episode. The the images of Jerome as the, as the potential Joker were everywhere, and I know the ratings for this episode were probably the highest they'd been since early on in the season. There's definitely an appetite out there for people to see the Joker in the Gotham TV show. Um, but as an episode, I would feel it's pretty unfortunate for the two or three million extra people that tuned into this episode who probably hadn't watched another episode of Gotham that this is what they ended off getting. Um, I think people probably would have been expecting more. I know I was. I was expecting a lot more out of the um, this episode. Um, I did like Jerome, and I did like the character, whether he's the Joker or not, as we discussed. I don't know whether that's whether that's even the right question to be, answer, to be asking, but the marketing department of Fox certainly thought enough that he was the Joker to promoted very heavily um but i don't know whether it'll get people to tune into next week's episode or not which is uh, which is unfortunate that's what they should be trying to do in the first season of a show is trying to make sure that people are coming back every week for episodes rather than just jumping in to watch one and um, i think that this episode will turn some people off and get to create more people that are disappointed in the show than people that are excited to see what happens next week. Speaking of next week, we uh, next week we have another connection to the Joker. We have the Red Hood gang arriving exactly. in Gotham. And I'm really excited by this, because I think it kind of comes back to uh, what I said earlier in the episode, and also my hope for the character of Jerome, that we're being introduced to a huge number of different backstories mm. to 
the possibility of the Joker, but at the end of the day, and when all things are said and done, that the Joker's backstory ultimately is a mystery. Mm -hmm. That maybe one of these is his actual backstory in the minds of the writers and the creators of this show, and even DC Comics, but we're never told that. That, to me, is really an interesting prospect, that Mm -hmm. we can look at all these different storylines and decide, oh, I like that one, that could be the Joker's book, we never know whether that's the true Joker. Yeah. I hope it goes along that line. And I think given the title of The Red Hood, maybe that is what's being done here by the Gotham writers. I hope so. I hope we don't get a definitive, this is the backstory of the Joker. Mm. I hope we're given a smorgasbord, if you will, of <laughs> of potential backstories for the Joker, or could be the Joker's backstory, mm. um, but we will never know. Yeah, yeah, no, really interesting. Thank you for joining us for the review of The Blind Fortune Teller. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We would certainly love to hear your thoughts. Please give us your thoughts on feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. You know, what did you think of Jerome? Do you think he's the Joker? Do you think the Flying Graysons were introduced um, well? And um, What did you think of Butch Gilsian dancing? It would be interesting to, to hear um, your thoughts on, on this episode, given the the hype surrounding it. Remember, you can listen to us on iTunes. Just go to gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes. Um, You can also follow us on Stitcher, Player FM, or any other good podcast catcher. Remember, you can always leave us uh, a review, um, and you'll be entered into the competition if we read out the comments, thoughts, or review um, on the air. All right, thanks again for listening. We'll be talking to you next week for The Red Hood. Yeah, thank you so much for listening, um, and we'll see you again next week. Gotham TV Podcast, do not cross Alan and Montoya. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing Oh, when you're laughing The sun comes shining through You know It seemed like a hybrid between Jack Nicholson um, and the other one. It seemed like a little hybrid between Jack Nicholson and then... uh... (laughs) It seemed like a distinctive hybrid between Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger's uh, Joker. And even with a bit of uh, what's-his-face in for good (laughs) measure. You're adding, adding stuff that you don't, <laughs> that you can't remember. Um, Cesar Romero. <laughs> oh, oh.